Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, ethics, and uh, then you'll have a quiz, and then you're free to go for the day. The uh, topic today is also a PowerPoint presentation, at least the main topic in ethics that I emphasize is a PowerPoint presentation available in your resources tab. It's called Agency. And that's where, as I said, that's the focus of today's lecture. And it will spill over a little bit into Monday. And then Monday will be uh, a few other cleanup topics. And then on Wednesday, you'll have your review. And you'll do your student evaluations on that day, too. So we have uh, a good, quiet ending to the semester. But do make sure that you follow get good notes for this lecture and also uh, go through that PowerPoint presentation because it is it parallels closely uh, most of this lecture. So without further ado though, we must always look at the numbers to begin. And it is not a good day, it is an unpleasant day. The Dow was down, it's nothing horrible, but the Dow was down the most at uh, almost three quarters of a percent. And the S&P had tried to stay in positive territory the last couple hours. It's been sliding uh, down and it's now uh, below where it started the day. The NASDAQ made a valiant run, but about noon it was out of gas and it started sliding. So I don't know if it'll finish negative or not, but it's just not very good. Look at crude oil. Remember how I told you that that big price spike uh, was not going to be lasting very long. Sure enough, we're definitely in the 72 to 79 band again. The price of crude has just dropped through the floor, as I told you it would, and that should bring down the price of gasoline by a penny or two within a week or so. And most of this is just on uh, forecast of weak demand for hydrocarbon products as we the economy seems to be kind of slowing down somewhat. Let's hope we can stay out of a recession, but uh, I don't, can't guarantee that at all. Gold fell below the $2,000 uh, uh, per ounce neckline, which is kind of interesting. And also the bond yields spiked today somewhat. Uh, which, of course, yields go up, price goes down. That means investors are getting out of bonds. It, <clears throat> interestingly enough, though, that money isn't flowing toward equities, and it's certainly not flowing toward gold. So the conclusion would be that uh, money is going to the sidelines, into cash, into money market securities, uh, which is what we call cash. Uh, uh, that wait and see kind of position the big dogs are taking right now overall. We just don't know where the market is going, although there are some, I've seen some pretty reputable analysts who think we may have what's called a summer rip, uh, an up 
surge in the market as we go into the summer months. Whether that's going to happen or not, I don't know. Right now, most investors are just saying, yeah, let's see where, let's keep our uh, money in high liquid, highly liquid form just to know what to do later when we see better, more clearly what's coming. Now, as far as the dollar is concerned, as you can see, the euro has appreciated more against the dollar, so has the British pound, uh, the British pound. So that means that the value of these foreign currencies is going up, so the dollar is depreciating. Now that sounds, oh, that's bad. Actually, there is good news in that because as the dollar depreciates, that means that our exports to other countries get cheaper in those countries. That means that our export industries will benefit from this. The other part of it is that if the, let's say the euro is appreciating, that means that their imports to our country get more expensive, which means that that gives our domestic producers of uh, substitute goods uh, a chance to make some good sales. If your foreign competitors' prices are going up uh, on the shelves, that would mean that people might be go toward buying uh, the domestic brands. That's good news too. So it's not all bad news when the dollar has a depreciation like we're seeing right now. In fact, let me look over here at Japan. Japan is opposite. Yeah, the, the yen is... Actually, interestingly, the oh, that's backwards. The yen is slightly appreciating against the dollar. The I keep saying that the yen is slightly appreciating against the dollar. So who knows? Maybe some Japanese cars uh, will get expensive, and that will mean that people will consider buying a domestic car instead. So there's how you look at that. It's kind of a, a double-edged sword there. Now, as far as the rest of the world is concerned, last night Tokyo had a bad time. As you can see, the Nikkei 225, the 225 big companies on the Tokyo index, uh, Tokyo Stock Exchange slid. It wasn't terrible, but it was almost three quarters of a point. And then the uh, London had a grouchy day too, never did come back to positive territory, down for the day from the start about half a percent. So the world is actually in kind of this, uh, we're not sure where things are going from here kind of mode right now. There's, there is concern that there could be a global recession. I don't think there's much concern that it would be a particularly strong recession, but at the same time, you know, that possibility is on the table and investors are being very cautious right now. If you look at the trading volume on the S&P 500, yeah, you see that normally a normal day over the past year would have about 4.3 billion shares today, and we're nearing the end of the day. We've got only about 1.8 billion. So there's definitely a lot of caution going on in the markets right now. Who knows where I'll go from here? I certainly won't. I've been creamed lately in my fun investments. They certainly weren't fun at the end of the day. Let me go on to the topic for today. This is ethics. Now, the state of Illinois uh, likes to have me uh, have us do a uh, talk on ethics, which of course is reasonable considering the politicians of Illinois are the most ethical you could imagine, or something like that. Uh, but. Uh, even I am required every year, uh, I have 
all these different cert certifications I have to refresh every year. They have this big one, the ethics uh, thing, where I have to go through this whole narrative and answer these uh, quizzes and all this. The funniest thing about that, though, is that this whole thing that they do is here is an ethics law, here's what you happens if you violate it. Here's another ethics law. Here's what you happens if you violate this one. All over and over again, just all of these laws. Now understand that that is just absolute folly. Ethics is not law. Ethical actions can't, well, let me, let me put up a quick little chart here. You can have ethical or unethical on a row, but on the other side you can have legal and illegal. And we can, I can chart you out versions that are uh, things that are ethical and legal, but there are many unethical acts that you can commit that are perfectly illegal. And on the other hand, there are ethical actions that are actually illegal. And there are unethical actions that are illegal. But here, these two are the ones that are problematic in our business world. Because there's where we get into problems where we see something as an unethical action, but we can't do anything about it because it was legal for the company to do it. Or a person does something that's really unethical, but there was no law violated in doing that. But on the other hand, there are things that you can do that are highly ethical, but they are illegal, and you can get in trouble for acting in an ethical fashion. Now, when I say the word ethics, ethics is a code directing actions and behavior by a person or an organization. Ethics is a code that directs action by a person or an organization. Ethics is a code that directs action by a person or an organization. Now that is not the same as morals. Ethics is our way of keeping away from a religious basis for what we are saying should be done. The problem is what should be done. The first, one of the early attempts in more modern times, I believe it was in the 16th century, was set forth by a philosopher named Immanuel Kant. We call it the categorical imperative. Now, the problem, okay, Kant was German, and he wrote in German, and it's very difficult sometimes to translate German into other languages. Here's a good, here's a good attempt at it. Always act as you would expect others to act. Now this is kind of simplistic, but it's, it's a nutshell, it's, it's good. This sounds like the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but it's not. Ethical action 
in the categorical imperative is entirely about you. Okay, I would like you to act in a specific way. That means that I, it's all about me. It doesn't matter whether you act that way or not. It has nothing to do with you whatsoever. It's me. If I don't want this to be done by other people, why the hell would I do it myself? The hypocrisy is obvious in so many people in our time. It always has been. It's no different. But this is a call to act yourself, you, the way you want other people, you would expect them to act. So this was categorical, always. Don't violate this. Don't go away from this code. It is a set-in-stone directive. And it, 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 was, it was well embraced uh, uh, by, uh, in its time because it did have sort of a, as the Renaissance was proceeding, and especially with the advent of Protestantism, there was more of an emphasis on taking the, the thou shalt away from the church, away from the sovereign, and putting the burden on the person himself or herself. But it is categorical. And by the time we get to the 19, uh, 19th century, the 1800s, we had some philosophers who were taking a different approach, which we could call situational ethics. Situational ethics. Now, there were a couple of people who were uh, philosopher types who were pushing this as a new way to think. On one hand, there was John Stuart Mills, and then there was Ralph Bellamy. Now, don't worry too much about the names themselves, but John uh, Mills had this idea. It was called utilitarianism. Utilitarianism. It worked like this. When you act, act to the good of the greatest number of people. You're going to do things that hurt some, help some, but you should always act for the best of the majority, of the most people in a situation. The problem with this is, of course, this gives latitude for things like slavery. Back in the early 1800s in the United States, slavery was okay with most people just because it hurt a bunch of African-American slaves and uh, abused people of other nationalities. It was just, oh, indentured servitude, slavery. Well, most people say it's okay, so it's okay. And that's, that, that, that's sort of one of the big problems with utilitarianism, is that you, you, it's a license to abuse the minority. Bellamy took a wider approach. It had to be in more of the look at the situation itself. Don't just say always for the good of the most people. Bullshit. If it hurts a small minority terribly, then it's not ethical. It is not ethical. Now, here's the problem. Books, uh, 
We talk about this in an abstract way. You will face it in reality, right in your face. I'll give you a good starting kind of an example to, to do this. Uh, you, madam, are the CEO of a pharmaceutical company, okay? Now, your job is to maximize the wealth of your shareholders. That's your duty. Okay, you have come out with a drug that cures an incurable disease in children. Children who had this disease die within five to seven years of diagnosis. You've come out with a drug that makes this not happen. You are going to go to a press conference the next day and announce we've done it, clinical trials, establish it, we're good. Now, the next morning, of course, that's going to make your stock pop, right? Okay, now I'm your chief scientist and I come in the night before and I say, I've got, I need to tell you this. For every 1,000 children who, to whom we give this drug, 995 are cured. Five are killed within six weeks. Five are killed within six weeks. What are you going to do at that press conference tomorrow? Are you going to announce the cure? Remember, your job is to maximize the wealth of the shareholders. That's your duty. What are you going to do? No, no, you, you, just you. I what? probably wouldn't. Wouldn't what? I wouldn't do the I wouldn't say anything. You wouldn't say anything? Your job is to, sh uh, you can't hide information. Oh, that's my, personally, my Personally, I see. Okay. You're trying to, you're, you're doing a little bit of a tap dance here. I understand, though. What would you do? What is it, Carrie, again? What is it? Cures 995. No, but what disease? Like what? Oh, well, I won't tell you the disease, but I will tell you that this disease kills. It has a 100% kill rate in five to seven years. And you're going to save 995 of every 1,000 kids who takes this drug. So it has a 99.5% efficacy. But the kids that it kills, it kills in six weeks. They would have lived five to seven years without the drug. What are you going to do? Right. <laughs> no, that's not what you're going to do. You're not going to get up there and say, this is hard. No. You have to do what is right, what is ethical. But you have a duty to maximize wealth of the shareholders. That's, a, that's one. Let me give you one that's, that will hit a little closer to home. Most of you will get jobs in large corporations, possibly multinationals. I can tell you about a big industrial company. Some of you might even get a job there. They build construction equipment, earth movers, uh, cranes, all kinds of great mechanical stuff. They build housing developments, skyscrapers, buildings. Their, their equipment is used all over the world. And you're going to get a job there, and they're going to pay you well. They do. They really pay well. You can advance there. You can make a very good living at this company. This company also sells its equipment around the world. Well, around the world, there are countries where it sells the equipment to authoritarian regimes. In some countries, they sell equipment to countries that occupy other 
lands. In fact, this company sells equipment to one country that occupies a vast tract of land, and those, that company's equipment, its earth movers, go into that land and they plow down villages. They plow out olive trees that have grown for hundreds of years of families. And if anyone gets in their way trying to stop them, those, those bulldozers will go right over those people and mangle them to death. And there are videos of this happening. But you need a job, and they're offering you a really good job. What the hell are you going to do? You see, because, oh, well, I'll go in there, and I'll change their corporate cult. No, you won't. You'll be, they'll fire your ass. You want to eat? You want to pay your rent? You've got to get a job when you get out of here. And they're offering you the best job possible. Maybe the only job you've got an offer for. What are you going to do? Are you going to say, well, I can't live with myself? Oh, of course you can. Money doesn't buy happiness. Go out to uh, a shopping mall and you'll find out you're pretty damn happy when you go out, leave there with bags of goodies and toys. <clears throat> Here's the reality of it. What I'm getting down to is a basic, and this takes us to a completely different realm, but I'm getting down to a basic fact of human nature. We pursue our own self-interest. At the end of the day, we don't watch out for those out there that we don't know about. We don't even watch out for those to whom we are responsible unless we have to. That's the reality of life and human life and it's definitely the reality of business. Uh, so that matrix right there that I wrote up there, you'll do whatever is in your own best interest. Now let me go take this on another track here. You, madam, are driving down a highway, yeah, a, a country road, smooth, beautiful day, straight, lovely road, and you drive by a sign that says 55 miles per hour. Now, I found out that folks out here see speed limit signs as not as laws, but as challenges. So, straight road, beautiful day. You decide you're going to put that pedal to the metal. 65, 75, 85. You hear a voice in the back seat say, warp six. You see the stars start streaming behind you and all this kind of stuff. So you're just driving along, having a good time. Way up the road in a, one of those spurs driveways into a field, you see a car. <laughs> well, you get closer and you see that it's the sheriff's deputy. What are you gonna do? Slow down. You ever see that? You're driving on the highway, all these cars are flying by you and all of a sudden you see brake lights up ahead. Well, they just found Jesus. His name is Mr. State Trooper parked there. You slow down. Monitoring begins to control your behavior. Monitoring. So then, as you get closer, you say, oh God, he's standing out beside the car, his car. He's got a radar gun. And you slow down even more. But then, as you get closer, you see that he's actually stooped over looking at his flat tire on his car. 
So what do you do? Oh, you'll speed up again. I do. You know, I'll drive. I'll wait to him. Hi, officer. How you doing? You know, that's how you do it. So in other words, the second phase in this is enforcement. No contract, social or business or whatever, is meaningful unless there is both monitoring and enforcement. Neither. If one of those is not present, then it's meaningless. You've, you've lost the contract. So now I'm going to take you to two definitions. Agent and principal. And this is P-R-I-N-C-I-P-A-L. Agent and principal. The agent in a contract is the person responsible for monitoring or for, well, I'm sorry, for um, maximizing the welfare of another person. Now when I use the word person here, I'm using it in the legal sense. A person could be an individual, it could be something larger. A person is an identifiable legal entity. So a person could be a person, a human, or it could be something that is more, like a corporation, or a partnership, or whatever. Now, the principal is the person whose welfare is supposed to be maximized by the agent. By the agent. So you see, this agency relationship binds the agent and the principal. This kind of, this understanding of these bindings goes back far, far beyond, uh, earlier than even our written words. We see in the language that was at the base of the many languages of Europe and North Africa and even West Asia, this, this word, it starts with an L, lex, line, ligature, law, logos. All these have to do with a binding of some kind. And these relationships are the center of that binding. Let me do this. Okay, a doctor and his patient. Who is the agent and who is the principal in a doctor-patient relationship? Can you tell me? Oh, yeah. The doctor's supposed to be the agent. Bingo. 
the doctor is charged with maximizing the health of the patient in that case. A lawyer and his or her client, the lawyer is the agent to maximize the welfare of the client. The board of directors of a corporation is the agent of the stockholders as a body. The board of directors is there to maximize the wealth of the shareholders. And then the executives are the uh, agents who carry out the will of the board of directors pursuant to it. You can get other ones too. A parent-child relationship. A parent-child relationship. Who is the agent and who is the principal in a parent-child relationship? The parent is the agent. Bingo. The parent is the agent. The child is the principal in that relationship. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Try another one here. One that might be a little bit more complex. Ma'am, in a... Uh, oh, no. I will ask this. Okay, I, I usually ask this of one of the gentlemen in the room. Sir, in a marriage, who is the agent and who is the principal? And I caution you to be careful in your answer here. Who is the in a marriage? Huh? Oh, you're a bold guy. <laughs> who would you say? That's okay. I I won't kill you anymore. I think it just depends on the situation. Actually, no. The marriage is the principal. The husband and wife are both the agents because they are both charged with maximizing the welfare of the marriage. The marriage is a person under law. The marriage is a person, and both of those. Uh, people in the relationship are there to maximize the welfare of the marriage. But the marriage is just a thing. I mean, how could that? That's exactly the point. The agents give it life. It is only through their ethical actions that it exists. You, sir, are the husband in a relationship. Your wife has gone off on a business trip. And you get the phone rings. Ring, ring, hello. Hi, remember me? I'm from the sorority you used to hang out at sometimes. We're having a twerkathon and we need a judge. Would you come over? <laughs> what are you going to do? Yo, bro. <laughs> you understand, though, that you have an incentive. My God, that's a. Uh, <laughs> come to my office, we'll talk. But you have an incentive to not maximize the welfare. Do you see you have an incentive? No, I wouldn't even consider. Like, hell, you wouldn't. You'd pause. That, that parent child relationship. Let me tell you how you're supposed to maximize the welfare of the kids. I'm the parent, and I'm telling you from my personal experience. When you go home at night, you're supposed to maximize the welfare of those kids. You see, you walk in the door after a long day. The kids are bouncing off the walls, jumping on the couch, swinging from the chandelier, you know, 
chasing the dog around the house and all this kind of stuff. And you're supposed to grab them and, oh, come on, kids, let's go. I'm going to make you dinner. I'm going to make you a nice, uh, a really healthy dinner from scratch. I love you so much. And then I'll give you a bath and then we'll read bookies together to put you to sleep. I love you so much. That's not what it's going to happen. You're going to stagger in there. You're going to sit down in the chair. The kids are tearing up everything. Yeah, get off there, goddammit. Yeah, here, take my belt. Beat yourself. You're bad. Put some nuke and puke in the microwave. Uh, go ahead, it's in the freezer. I'm tired. You see, you have an incentive not to maximize the welfare of the agent. It's always going to be there, whether or not you want to admit it. The best business people are the ones who admit to the evil and the sin and the flaws and the unethical desires and then conquers them. That's how it's done. Don't lie. Well, I'm a good person. Find where you're wrong. And the problem is that you are going to be bosses. God help us all. And you cannot assume that your agents are going to be ethical. Now here's an interesting thing. Who is responsible for the agent's behavior? Monitoring and enforcement. Who is responsible for making sure that the agent's carry out their duties as to maximize the welfare of the principles. Yes? No. It is actually the principle. In a, now there's a relationship I'll cover on Monday where this isn't true. But in general, you don't have any room as a principle to blame the agents. It's your job. Let me explain this in a little more detail to you, and this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but it's important for you to know this. When I talk about laws, I can divide law up all kinds of different ways. I can divide it into civil and criminal. Uh, well, there's one way that you don't probably hear about. It's called common law versus statutory law. Now, statutory law is written law. Everything is written down. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. The Roman Lex Romana was a statutory law. By the time you get to the later Roman Empire, it was so insanely huge that no lawyer could practice any more than a page or two of it, for God's sake. It was so comprehensive, written law. Now opposed to that is a kind of law called common law. This is tradition-based law. The law of the elders. It is oral. It can be written down what the decisions were, but it relies upon respect for previous decisions. In fact, that term has come up recently in Supreme Court arguments. We, the term in Latin is stare decisis. What you'll hear in common English, American English, stare decisis. Stare decisis. It is a law look to the past. What has already been decided? This is our governing beacon for how we adjudicate now. What, has the, what have the tribal elders decided before? 
it is it binds a society more because it invites us it compels us to not rely on writing and some authoritarian's fist of the moment. It has to change over time though, but when the Supreme Court makes decisions, it makes them on the basis what has been decided before. Lower courts can't decide whatever they want. They must look to what has been decided previously, and that's how you prepare, prepare legal briefs. If you're trying to convince a court of something, you refer to what has been decided before that, in this case. That's how heavy this law is. It's quite magnificent in a way. This is why you hear, well, we should look at the Constitution itself to decide. No, you shouldn't. The Constitution has no meaning until it has been adjudicated by constitutional law. That is the body of the tribal decisions that have been made on any matter. The original meaning, the original writing, the original intent, that is not what governs us. It is the constitutional law, that body of the tribal elders making their decisions in the past. Now obviously that can have problems because if times change, then you have to move forward. But it's a slower process, and in some ways, possibly a better process. So that, that kind of sets the stage for what I'm going to say here, that gets us back toward the main track. Now, the problem was that the Roman world was all the statutory law, Lex Romana, and, and variations on it like in France, the Napoleonic Code and what. Britain was Germanic. That was common law. So when the French Normans invaded and occupied England in 10, 10, starting in 1066, they tried to impose statutory law, what the Romans did, upon the heathen, as it were, of England, who were all common law. And so we got this mishmash and it came over here to the United States. So we have common law and statutory law pulling back and forth at each other all the time. And it's kind of maddening. Interestingly, early in the life of the country in the 1780s, the Supreme Court very quickly, as it were, laid down the law in a case called Marbury v. Madison. And that's in your PowerPoint on this. The, it, it established, Supreme Court said, no. We have the right of judicial review. You can write a law, but if someone brings it to us, we will decide whether it is constitutional or not. So you see, you have kind of a combination. The law is written by the Congress and approved and signed by the president, but then the courts can say, well, that sucks. No, it's unconstitutional. And then the Congress has to go back, if it really wants a law, it has to rewrite it to pass constitutional muster. That's how our system works. It's maddeningly complex, but at the same time, it kind of embraces both traditions at once. However, you must understand that business operates under statutory laws interpreted as regulations but it also operates in a legal environment that is common law. 
And th what I'm about to tell you comes from ancient common law. It's called the respondeat superior. Respondeat superior. Resp Let me give you an example. I, I, I used to teach the legal environment of business, and the cases were, I'd, I had all these fun cases that brought home very clearly points, and you'll, you'll get two of those here. The first one is a case, and you can tell that this is going to turn south real fast. One, it comes from a, an incident at a bar. There's problem one. And two, it has uh, a bar in West Virginia. There's your second indication that there's going to be an issue. Okay, at this bar, they, there was one bartender. He was quite well known in the area. He was a knife thrower, and when he was making drinks, he would stop and he would throw a knife and it would hit dead on to a target, clear across the room. Someone would hold up a card, boom. Someone would point to a target, boom. He was awesome. Everyone loved him. Well, one night, this old, grizzled biker, old man, walked right in front of a knife as it was flying. It went into his left eye, like that. Well, being an old, grizzled son of a bitch, he immediately walked out of the bar, got into his truck, and drove to the emergency room. And uh, as I've heard the story, he walked in, and the lady at the front desk didn't even look up. She said, sign in, and someone will see you. We'll call your name. And he said to her, lady, ask me if this hurts. That's when she looked up and saw this knife sticking out of his eye. She went to a happy place and all of that. But ultimately, he sued the owners of the bar. And the owners of the bar said, oh, no, no, no. This, this was, you sue the knife thrower. I, that guy, the, and of course it, absolutely not. He was the agent. You were the principal. It was your responsibility. Well, he wasn't doing what we told him to. You allowed him to do this. In fact, you earned lots of revenue from his act. You are the respondeat superior in this. Therefore, you carry the vicarious liability. The principal, unless they can show that that agent was being monitored and enforced properly and there was a forbidding of this and it still happened, it's the owners that are respons responsible. The principal carries the vicarious liability. Now let me take you off on a side, on another side stream here about knowledge. And this case comes from the Midwest, a car dealership. It was a used car dealership. They, uh, as many used car dealerships do, they buy cars from brokers, used cars from brokers, and then they sell them on their lot at a markup. It's how it's done. Well, there was an older woman she saw she, there was a car on the lot, had 23,000 miles on it, and looked nice. And so the salesman talked her into buying it. 
She drove it around a couple of weeks, within a couple of weeks, it was starting to show all kinds of problems. And so she took it to her grease monkey mechanic, car mechanic, and he said, well, ma'am, this car has easily 150,000 miles on it. And I'll even tell you this, someone's jimmied the uh, odometer. This, the title says 23,000, but that's not true. It's got lots more miles on it. And you can see clearly that the odometer was, full, was messed with. Well, she sued the dealership. And the dealership said, hey, we got it with this title with 23,000 miles on it. She needs to sue the broker who sold us the car. It's not ours, not our responsibility. We did not know that this car had such high mileage. And here's where we get into the two kinds of knowledge. Actual knowledge, as opposed to constructive knowledge. It does not matter that that dealership actually knew that the car had more miles on it. It could have known. That's constructive knowledge. Could have. You posed as a used car dealer. You posed with expertise in used cars. You sold it to her without looking what you could have done to find out. That means that you are liable. Not because you actually knew, but you could have known. You remember that in all of your dealings, especially in the business world, you will not be held to account on what you actually knew. It's what you could have known based upon your position, your representations, and what you told these people, your, your, your customers. You can't hold the, someone else, well, it wasn't my fault, I didn't, I didn't know. You could have known. That means you are the one who is responsible for this. And that's something that's important. This is, again, common law. This is not written down. God knows they'll try to write a law. That's what the politicians do. But it's based upon ancient law. It's what you could know. What you say you know, what, how you pretend, how you pose. With, uh, to, uh, the, and that's why you have to be careful. And you can't just go out there and loll your way through what you sell. You have to actually be knowing of, uh, make sure that you know everything there is to know. Because if you pose that way, then you're going to be held to that account. Now let me take you back to the mainstream here on this. Here's the agency dilemma. And this takes us to the what you do as far as ethical action is concerned. It's how a business person must think. As a matter of fact, this agency issue is brought up a couple of times in the first couple of chapters of the, your textbook. It's in the early chapters of textbooks in my other courses too. They mention agency problems. And this is what it boils down to. It's called the agency dilemma. The agent has incentive to maximize 
its own interest instead interest instead of that of the principle. This is always. If you are my agent, you have incentive to cheat on me. Now, I know you're a fine, upstanding, wonderful, you know, God-fearing, whatever person, but you could still do it. I don't care what your intentions are, what are your capabilities. That is true in business and in warfare. Never assume the opponent's intentions, only the capabilities. You must assume. I don't care. Well, I, you know, I know you're a damn good employee. You've been my friend for years, and I, I, I love you to death, and I know your family, and I know how many affairs you've had and all this, uh, or something like that. That doesn't matter. I have to assume that you're going to cheat on me. And it's my responsibility, not yours, to monitor and enforce our contract, period. It doesn't matter what your feelings are. That's one of those things. When you get into business, you, get, you have to stop saying, I feel or I believe. We don't care. It's all business. And I, you know, we'll have dinner together. We'll have drinks. Okay? But at the same time, you walk into that office, I'm going to assume that you will cheat on me. And so I have to monitor and enforce. Now, I don't want to do it in such a way that it demoralizes you, but that's your job up front. You must understand that this is us in this business place, which is different from us out there. When I was in the service, you should have seen those drill sergeants beat the shit out of us. Back in that time, they could. They could pee on us. They could knock us around. But then when it was over, they took us to bars, and we laughed, and we had a good time. Because there was a difference between our duties under the Constitution as soldiers and our personal lives. You remember that. And that's, you know, when you're a parent, it's really difficult because you have to assume that the kids are going to try to break rules. How far do you go and be an asshole with them before they become really bad and start listening to terrible music like Nickelback uh, or Dubstep or something like that? Or for God's sake, Kanye. But anyway, this is where we frame ethical action. We do what we have to, because we have to assume that humans are humans, and they will have incentive. Whether they carry it out or not is irrelevant. It is that they will do it. That is what gets us. Now, I've... There, Understand, though, that, and I've said this before, in finance, we don't care about fluffy words and terms. We want liquidated value. In other words, tell me a dollar amount. What does this agency problem cause, agency dilemma, mean in dollars to us? And that's why when we do when we talk about agency, part of that discussion has to do with agency costs. Agency costs. 
We can break them down into five specific cost categories. The agency costs. Now I'll go through a couple here and then I'll go through the rest on Monday and get to fiduciary duty. But agency costs. The first of them is perquisites. Perks. You've probably heard that term before. It's actually a technical term. It is extracting agency costs by virtue of position. Extracting agency costs by virtue of position. The CEO of the company who has a desk so large you could land a small plane on it. That's shareholder money that bought that desk. You could have done without that monstrous desk. The executives who go to five-star hotels when they could have done a damn teleconference or they could have stayed at a Motel 6, eat at the fine restaurants. That was shareholder money. That's perquisite. You are an agent and you are extracting a cost from the principal. Classic agency dilemma. And yet it's done all the time. My God, the, way, the CEOs, we have plenty of data that shows that there is no productivity increase above a few hundred thousand a year. And yet we have these executives working with boards of directors, cranking out tens of millions of dollars because they can. They're extracting perquisites. The next one in this is shirking. Avoiding duties, shirking. This is the person who takes 10 minutes for a five minute smoke break. The fool who walks around the office on Monday morning, so oh, how was your weekend? Oh, <laughs> and, oh, mine was great, yeah. Instead of doing work. I was, I was a consultant for a company where there was this one executive manager. My desk, I make sure that my desk is clean, ev cleared every night before I leave. I won't leave until it's cleared. Well, you know how he did it? He took all the work on his desk and he put it on his subordinate's desk. And then they'd come in the next morning, oh my God, what the hell? That's shirking your responsibilities. You're extracting an agency cost. You're paid to do that work and you shift it to someone else so that you don't have to do it. I worked, I, I did a consulting gig at this one company where there was a mid-level executive. Every morning he showed up at eight o'clock like he was supposed to and he'd go by the receptionist's desk and he would grab the Wall Street Journal off her, off her counter and he'd go into the bathroom and he'd sit there for 40 minutes in the toilet. That man had the best, most regular toilet eye breaks I had ever seen. He was extra, he was shirking. He was supposed to be working, he was taking a shit. Okay? That's the whole, that, that's the reality of it. And he would do it, it was an agency cost. He was paid to be at his desk working, instead he was working his colon. Okay? That's the second, and there are three more and I'll get to those on Monday. For now, though, you have a quiz to take, and then that's all I have for you today. I thank you.